people want a soundbite, don't they? And they, they all, actually, the reality is what they want is a really simple answer to a complex problem. But I'm sorry, there are no magic wands. These are complex problems. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Our Game 2 podcast. Kevil, how are you doing? Yes, I'm very good, thank you. And yourself? Yep, doing all right. I understand you're injured at the moment. How's your injury going? Uh, yeah, rehab's going well. Um, I'm about a week into a uh, hopefully two-week rehabilitation process. So yeah, hopefully not too long until I'm uh, back playing. Okay, and then so then hopefully all our millions of fans can come down and watch you play as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hope it's millions of fans by the end by the end of the podcast series. But yeah, for now we're, we're doing well with the numbers, aren't we? We're doing okay. Um, hopefully, our next guest will help boost our numbers because he's a heavyweight when it comes to football and, I guess, Asians within football as well in the UK. Sanjay, hello and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. No problem at all. We're very pleased to have you with us. So this is Sanjay Bandari. Sanjay Bandari, you are... So we know you as the chair of Kick It Out. Yeah, you do. <laughs> cool how long have you had that role for a year actually yeah it was september last year i was appointed uh i think i I did about 10 days and then i went straight on holiday for three weeks to the u.s and then came back and pretty much my first or second day back my second day back was england bulgaria so straight straight into into the firing line yeah okay we'll come back to that in a short while firstly Sanj we asked this of all of our guests first of all what is your ethnic background uh Indian parents from the Punjab cool okay and what football team do you support Uh, I've been man and boy since 1974 a Man United supporter what happened in 1974 was it just when you were born no I was born in 1968 but 74 was the first year I remember uh, even being conscious of football and just, you know, we were actually born and brought up in the in Wolverhampton, but my uncles and cousins and aunties were all from Manchester. My dad wasn't really into football. So it's like favourite uncle, favourite cousin, they sort of got me into football. Okay, fantastic. So you're, you're the chair of Kick It Out. Can you just tell us a little bit about your life prior to kick it out and how and what led you to kick it out yeah sure so uh a bit of a circuitous route really i had a 29 30 year career mostly in professional services so i was a i was a lawyer and sort of practiced in white collar crime and international fraud so uh chasing assets around the world uh, on behalf of clients that had their money taken or acting for sometimes for the auditors of big institutions like banks so i I cut my teeth in the early 90s on a on a bank that collapsed that was worth about 10 billion dollars that was my sort of bread and butter type work i then flipped into uh technology i helped to write the english court rules on how we deal with electronic evidence and then i built technology businesses often working with legal and compliance and then I sort of went on. I was a partner in one of the big four accounting firms for, for, for 12 years. 
and I move from sort of legal and compliance technology into other areas of technology, innovation, and more client-facing roles. <clears throat> but I'd always had uh, I'd always had side hustles. So uh, when I was in earlier in my career, I represented prisoners on death row in Trinidad uh, um, as, as part of a pro bono panel. I did some stand-up comedy for a couple of years, uh, and then actually for about 12 years at the end uh, with, with EY, I was our partner sponsor for our race strategy uh, and really involved, heavily involved in diversity and inclusion activities, and we, we, we drove some really strategic change at the organisation. Off the back of that, I got involved uh, for the, with the government on the government's review of the ethnic diversity of FTSE 100 companies called the Parker Review. So I was our partner sponsor for um, EY's involvement in that. And then off the back of that, uh, I was appointed by the Premier League as a panellist on its equality standards. So assessing all the Premier League clubs for their compliance with the equality standard. And so I did that for about four years. And that was where I came across Kick It Out because they were providing support to a lot of the clubs on how to, to um, uh, improve their policies, practices and procedures. Um, and then, you know, a year and a half ago or so ago, about a year and a half ago, I decided that actually I wanted to have a change of scene and do some different things. So I'll move to more of a portfolio career uh, and have a bit of a break from from professional career. And uh, as I was doing that, this role came up and someone asked me if I would apply. And I thought, you know, it's a charity role. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's I'm contributing my time and I'm a massive football fan. It's inequality and inclusion. It's, it ticks all the boxes. It's a great, great thing for me to get involved in. So, yeah, not, not a football route, but football being my hobby, my single biggest passion for over 40 years. Uh, it's been the only constant in my life, I would say. Okay. And so I have to ask this follow-up question. Sanjay, tell us a joke. <sighs> no, I don't. My mum my always says, never do for free what you can be paid for. Right, I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's I a good that. answer. Yeah, okay, fine. I'll leave it. Uh, we'll leave the jokes to Kevil. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so kick it out. I think... Everyone or anyone who's involved in football, whether it's watching, supporting, going along to matches, etc., is aware of Kick It Out. I think something that slipped my mind, as you just mentioned, it's a charity. What is Kick It Out? What do they do? What are their aims, objectives, etc.? Yeah, so it is is a charity. Yeah, people do forget that. (laughs) We're a small charity, you know, we're... You know, if if you talked about the total turnover of English football... Our annual revenue represents between 0.01 and 0.02% of English football annual revenues. Okay, so it's a tiny, tiny charity, but with a really big voice. Um, I've been doing a bit of a strategic view of the, review of the whole organisation, and really there are there are three things that we do and will continue to focus on. Um, one is sort of campaigning and advocacy. Uh, so, you know, there, there are always... There's always a new frontier and how you tackle discrimination or promote inclusion. And there are always, you know, current hot issues. By definition, some of that is reacting to whatever's going on in the day. And so, of course, over the last couple of years, huge rise in hate crime. We recently reported our annual reporting stats, uh, you know, doubling of race, uh, race hate crime over the last two years, doubling of homophobic abuse in our reports over the last year. 
Um, so as part of the campaign, we also run a, an app and, and reporting service. So if you witness discrimination at a ground or online, you can report it to us. Uh, we can't investigate that because we're not, we're not an investigating body. But what we will do is try to provide, and increasingly in the future, try to provide greater transparency about where things are in the process uh, and uh, how close you are to resolution and encouraging the authorities to resolve them. The other two things that we do are around education and talent. So education, um, we work with uh, kids in the academies from under nine through to under 23s, doing training, uh, equality in spas across all the Premier League and then some of the EFL clubs each year, um, uh, training them on in diversity and inclusion and equality and, and discrimination. Uh, we help the clubs with how they get uh, I suppose with their compliance obligations, what they should be doing to put practices, procedures in process. Um, we have some other inclusive leadership in football awards uh, uh, education. We also have a fan education program, which is really about rehab. So if people have, if if a if a fan has offended, has done something, and is about to get banned, um, we might be we might be brought in to help educate that fan. That's a, a sample of the education stuff. And then the talent stuff is really, you know, we, we want to promote greater inclusion. So we're working quite heavily at the moment with the FA on their, their code for uh, equality in football leadership, which will set targets for representation, coaching and senior leadership level. But actually, you, you're not going to deliver that unless you connect the talent with the opportunity. And so we've been running a program called Raise Your Game, which we want to invest even more in, which is about how we connect the opportunity with the talent uh, and with the, with, the, with the employer. So those are really the, the, the things we do, campaigning and advocacy, education and talent programmes. Let's talk about the rehab of, of fans that are facing potential bans, etc. How... How many of those, how many people have gone through that course, do you know, approximately in the last year or so? I, I don't know. It was a bit of an experiment. We were running last year, uh, and, I, and I, I don't know off the top of my head the numbers, but but there will be some high-profile incidents like, you know, the Divock Origi banner or the young kid that abused uh, Son at Tottenham, where we will do one-on-one training with those individuals. Uh, and it was really something that the clubs were asking us about. Uh, uh, and so we hired someone and started developing this program. And part of the challenge in the nature is how do we how do we scale that? Uh, because it's something that the club seem to be quite interested in. Because we know, everyone knows you can't sort of ban, just ban your way out of these things. Uh, and, and every offender is slightly different, particularly inside a ground. Because... We kind of make these lazy assumptions, don't we? You know, which is as soon as the, we hear that there's an offence committed, we assume that the offender is some kind of c- career right winger. And the reality is that, as with most offences, particularly those that are committed in the ground, mm-hmm. the, the the most common denominator is actually one of three things, which is either alcohol, drugs, or drugs and alcohol. Uh, those those are the reasons why very often. And those are the things at the heart of what why someone might, for instance, behave out of character. And and so really with the idea with the rehab thing is if someone is amenable to rehabilitation, because some people are not, but if someone is amenable to rehabilitation, you, you have a 
an education program to help them to understand the impacts of their behaviour uh, and with a view that they would maybe lessen the ban that they would get and that they would uh, that they would be able to come back to game, but they would still have to serve a, a ban, I suppose, a bit like a speed awareness course. Okay. I mean, part of the reason why I asked that was because where I sit at West Ham, we're quite close to the away fans. There's a chap who sits two to three seats to my right. So we've been sitting in this particular seat for a, uh, well two seasons or season and a half, if you discount the COVID one. And sometimes my brother can't make it. He's had a, a baby relatively recently. So some of my friends might come who are black. And we chat with this bloke all the time. Never been a problem. And then in January of this year, I think we were playing, I can't remember we were playing, Everton possibly. And all of a sudden, he's a bit of a character anyway, but he, he, he got up and then he started abusing one of our players, including using the N-word, which kind of shocked me, thinking, I've been sitting and talking to this bloke all this time. I don't believe that he's racist. What do I do? And I didn't know for myself, what do I do? Do I report to the club? Do I not report to the club? Um, and then I was thinking, if I do report to the club, perhaps I can suggest to them, is there some kind of education program he could go on to? Because I guess if you, like you said, yeah. if you just go straight to the ban, not only is he not learning, he the story he's going to tell other people isn't going to be, I said something racist and I got banned. It's going to be, club are treating me unfairly over something that they didn't happen, etc. And it just probably polarises opinion. Yeah, that's exactly it. And actually what you do is you entrench them. Uh, and, and so that's part of the motivation for for, for developing the, the programme is, is don't, don't entrench people and make people even more extreme and understand what happened in that particular offence and that particular offender and what was going on for that particular offender at that particular time. You know, I, I, it's very, like I say, it's very, very easy to to just pa- paint everyone with the same brush and assume that everyone that commits an offence like this is a, uh, a an irretrievable uh, racist, and that's just not always the case. I mean, you have to, like you say, and I, I've had experiences similar to you with people who you know, 99 times out of 100 have been great. And then suddenly one day you see a side to them or they say something. Um, and, and I've seen that actually people like that be suspended for the rest of the season and then come back the following season. Uh, so I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, that's the reason why we developed it. And, you know, if you ever wanted to, I know some folks at your club, you know, if you wanted to report it to us and to them, we'd be very happy to look at, look at and explore whether we could do an education programme with that person. Okay, something I should, probably should have asked you after you told me what the three main tenets of Kick Out are. Is it, are you guys working towards any particular targets, either short-term or long-term? To, to be fair, that's part of what I'm, I suppose I'm doing, I've been doing as part of the strategy review, but being candid we, we you know the most immediate thing is for us and all of the charities is to maintain existence because in the covid world where finances are really strapped the most important thing is that we that we uh stay in existence so i think we, we we've secured that i think that we're kind of working through what the what the got the specific goals are and whether they're numerical goals you'll see some of the numerical goals in terms of representation, you'll see those announced in mid-October, and, and that's a matter of public record because we've been working quite closely with the FA 
on the on the voluntary code uh or rather the code for leadership in uh, equality in football leadership and uh, so that those will get published and then there are some other things that we're doing on a campaigning front that again will you'll see in uh in in the next next few weeks which are more about how we turn bystanders into activists uh and what we haven't worked out is what whether there's a whether there's a, a numerical target we have for that in the background but you'll see a bit more about that in the next couple of weeks Okay, when you talk about leadership roles, what sort of organisations are we talking about? So the uh, uh, again, it'll come out in a couple of weeks' time, but the code is 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 aimed at uh, clubs from the top flight all the way down through to grassroots, um, and it's about representation at senior leadership level um, and uh, representation on the coaching side. So on the you know, on the sort of non-football side and on the football side. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that, the, and those those are really the systemic problems that have been there for 30, 40 years and really haven't changed very much. You know, that the particular senior leadership tends to be very, very white and male dominated, um, uh, and the coaching side. Where you'd expect, in particular, there to be a higher pull through of uh, black players from the playing community because they—that is the the most common pathway into coaching, not the only, but by by far the most common. We, we're not seeing the numbers come through in the way in which you would expect, so they're not commensurate with the playing side. So they, they, those are really the 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 two areas that we're looking at in the in terms of targets for the for the code so you'll be targeting as well as sort of grassroots football clubs the premier league and the efl as well we're starting from the top we'll i think we'll probably build the grassroots clubs in a little bit later just because also there's quite a lot going on in grassroots is any grassroots football going to be going on with with, with covid so the priority is is at the, at the top and getting people signed up to the code and getting clubs signed up to the code. We've got quite a lot of clubs, you know, we've had a working party. I think it'll be three months by the time uh, that will have elapsed by the time we, by the time we launch. And we've had clubs, many clubs, probably eight or nine in the Premier League that have already been involved in the drafting of the code. Okay. Have you, I mean, without naming any clubs, has, has there been any resistance from any of the clubs that don't think it's important or... Not, not really. I mean, this is like any committee where you have drafting. You know, that's this that's the thing. The devil's always in the detail. It's when you get down to drafting these things because it's really easy to stand on the outside and say, I want more of this and I want more of that. It's, and, you know, at some point, some people have to sit down and make that happen. And it's the sitting down and making that happen. Well, there's always some drafting points in that when you're doing that and people have differences of approach i think the reality is is where do you pitch those things and my experience of driving changes you've got to pitch those at such a level that it's a challenge but you can't pitch it at such a level that it's a, a, a unachievable challenge because as soon as you do that people just ignore it so it's got to be sufficiently stretching to be a challenge uh but 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 not overstretching but also by the same token not so easy that people can just achieve it really easily with very little effort there's got to be a bit of effort involved in that coming back to asians in football for a second when you're having these conversations with all the football clubs etc 
first of all, do you come across many other Asians in senior roles? No. No, it's predominantly white and male. And then when you come across people generally in football, you're, you're, you're obviously particularly from the playing side and, and so on, and the coaches, I think, more black people, but you really rarely see Asians. There's the odd one. There's, you know, people like Vinny Venkatesham at, at Arsenal, who's the, the chief exec, and you you obviously know, you know, Dal at the FA, and you'll see people like that. But there aren't, there aren't that many. <laughs> there aren't that many of us. Okay. And I mean, one of the reasons we, I guess we started the podcast and the website was to discuss or players or lack of players, Asian players at the highest level. Is that on anyone's radar from your experience? Uh, it, 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 it is, but not high enough up the radar is, is, is my blunt assessment. Uh, so I'm sure Dale's spoken to you about the Asian inclusion plan, particularly uh, 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 you know, from a grassroots level. Um, I know that the PFA have uh, some initiatives that, that they have, and there are some clubs that have got, I think, some particular you know local communities where they want to engage uh, and, and you know have representation on the pitch. But I, I don't think it's organised. I don't think it's really high enough up on the agenda. I think it's a scandal, uh, frankly. Uh, so I've told this story probably half a dozen times where. As part of my strategic review, I went out and spoke to about 250 people across football from the, from the very top, uh, the FA, Premier League, all the clubs, right way down through to grassroots, about, though there's a bit more we need to do on grassroots um, because we were just about to go onto some venue tours around the country when, uh, when lockdown hit. Um, but I had probably half a dozen parents, Asian parents, say to me that, academy coaches had said to them why should i waste time with your son when you're going to want them to be a lawyer or an accountant and that included a top six team right now i've said that story to probably half a dozen journalists no one's ever picked it up no one ever talks about it and i'm saying this is a scandal how can you how how can you not i don't understand how you can't talk about that because uh it's the kind of lazy racist stereotype that we stopped saying about black people in the eighties, you know, so there were, there was this thing about black players could be, you know, you could play on the wing uh, and you may be up front, but you can't be a center half and you can't be a midfielder and you can't be a captain because you haven't got the leadership skills. And you can't do it on cold, cold wind nights in Stoke either. You can't play, which is one of the reasons why that 1978 game is so seminal between West Brom and Man United. Because it wasn't just the Laurie Cunningham, you know, tore United apart and Cyril Regis scored scored that amazing goal. It's that it was snowing. It was snowing, and they used to say you couldn't play in the snow, and and so it just completely disproved that myth. So my my hunch is that there's a bunch of myths about Asian players that are being, that that people are still comfortable with their prejudices, that that they are letting cloud their judgment at academy level. Uh, And, you know, so one of the things I suggested, I sort of wrote a manifesto in in the Times a few weeks ago was, 
all clubs at academy and skating level should have unconscious bias training very very specifically focused on how they assess and discuss asian players you know and if you're discussing their family and the desire of the parents is that really appropriate does that really understand that even if that were true a generation ago it's definitely not true of this generation just not it's just not true it's a lazy trope it is. I've had a very similar experience with my son when he was 12 um, in a conversation with, I mentioned this on episode one of the podcast, um, chief scout of a London football club. He said to me, he has no interest in seeing my boy because as an Asian, he's not going to be big enough or strong enough and therefore they're not going to make any money out of him. There you go. We need to, we, you know, we need to gather more and more of these stories. I mean, part of the problem is we don't like you probably correctly identify. We don't have the voices and the powerful voices to share those stories. Uh, so I see it as part of my role to keep banging that drum and keep talking about these kinds of stories because um, we we need to see some change. You know, it's forty two years since Viv Anderson made his debut as a black player for England in 1978 and we're still waiting and with the single largest ethnic minority in the country there are three times more Asian people than there are black people in the UK and yet no representation in 42 years so to me that is the biggest single statistical anomaly in English football so did you say that you have got that on the agenda as kick it out or it's it's just what you've been doing outside Absolutely, it's part of it's part of, you know because kick it out covers um, tackling discrimination and promoting inclusion by almost by definition the tackling discrimination stuff is quite a lot of it tends to be reactive because you're dealing with whatever's in the news and whatever people want to talk about. There's an element of it that is proactive in the sense that there are these big systemic biases like the kind of thing that we're discussing today the 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 inclusion stuff really goes across you know almost irrespective of the protected characteristics and whether it's race gender sexual orientation you know actually we we cover we kind of cover all of those things obviously what people tend to know us for historically is uh is tackling racism uh and obviously we've had very significant representation from black uh, players and former black players uh, and so there is sometimes a perception that that's all we deal with but that's that's not that's not true I'll be honest my perception of kick it out previously and I apologize for this was that it's a relatively reactive organization because I think yeah. we we pretty much see you when we've got situations like the England Bulgaria game or yeah. Salah being abused or etc no, I agree. I agree. And that's part of what I would like to change is, and some of that is because we don't communicate very effectively all the other positive stuff that we're doing. So the only time you ever hear from us is when we're talking about, you know, observing on something that's going on. And part of what I'm trying to change is that, look, in my view, that when, when there's a problem, you're either a commentator or a contributor. And there are plenty of commentators. The world has enough commentators. What we don't have enough of is people who contribute to the solution so i would like us to be known as an organization that creates solutions uh, and so that's really what i've been working on and continue to work on and not all of that will be in the public domain because by definition some of these solutions 
you, you don't get solutions by pointing fingers and shouting at people. You get them by talking to people and getting them to trust you and coming up with good ideas. That's how you get solutions. And so that's really what we're trying to, as we refocus the organisation around, is around solutions. Sanjay, just quickly, I just wanted to ask Sanjay, um, you know, you said Asians have been waiting 40 plus years to kind of get their opportunity in football. I just, I just wondered where Asian participation and diversity kind of fits in the hierarchy of, you know, policies um, at, at Kick It Out. You know, you mentioned how there's different policies and they all have different importance depending on what's in the news and what's being spoken about. I just kind of wonder if you could give some insight onto where Asian participation sits in that kind of hierarchy. Yeah, it's 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 not the 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 hierarchy. I suppose was was, was what I was talking about was really about when we when we're dealing with the tackling discrimination rather than promoting inclusion stuff. You're often driven by the news agenda. You know, something happens and someone asks you for a quote, and you say, "Well, here's here's what we think about that." And so that's what people's perceptions are. It's it might be five or ten percent of your work, but it's actually about ninety percent of the public perception, which is part of the challenge that you identified. Actually, ninety percent of our work is all the other stuff that we do. Now, uh, and like I say, most of that stuff that we do is irrespective of whether it, you know race. Uh, creed religion sexual orientation so if we're doing our talent programs like raise your game we're focusing on underrepresented or minority communities in football and that's people from all of those underrepresented or minority communities maybe we don't talk about it very much but actually that's what we're doing so it's not like it's in the hierarchy of you know that we we don't we don't create a hierarchy based on either you know race or sexual orientation or gender we, that's not really the way we work uh but i understand that that's the way sometimes it's perceived from the outside mm. because when we're asked to comment we're asked to comment on incidents and guess where most of the incidents are they're about you know, the high profile ones the ones that people talk about are the relatively few and far between incidents that happen in the premier league and international football you know if you actually talked about volume of incidents that would be at grassroots but no one talks about them. They don't get the press coverage. That happens every week. It's like the Wild West out there. And that will be happening to black people. It'll be happening to Asian people. It'll be happening to clubs like Sports in Bengal. It happens all the time there. But actually getting people to focus on that and getting the, the media agenda on that, that's, that's a difficult thing. So I think there's more that we need to do in combination with folks like the the, the FA and the PFA to shine a light on it because I think it's not a priority for football and that's the problem. Mm. It needs to be a higher priority for football. I don't I don't know if you heard the the interview on Talksport um, about two weeks ago. Um, Simon Jordan was talking about the impact of obviously the Black Lives Matter movement in football and he he actually compared that to kick it out and um, you know the U, UEFA agendas uh, the UEFA. Um, platforms as well i think it's no room for racism or um not today not any day and they were comparing him saying you know black lives matter's only been around prominently in the uk for a couple of months now and it's already been it's taken the premier league in england by by force and yet organizations like like yours at kick it out and um no room for racism at uefa have had arguably less coverage and less effectiveness in promoting these issues so i just wondered what your thoughts were on that and also how kick it out as an organisation might get more coverage and be more effective moving forwards. Yeah, so I, I think we we have to con- sort of separate out symbols and gestures from 
substance. Mm. All right. So no room for racism is the Premier League's slogan and their value statement. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter has not just taken over. You know, has not just had an impact on football. It's had an impact on society. It's had an impact on the globe. This is a, there's a sort of zeitgeist moment here that that uh, everyone is engaged around that topic. And that phrase has created conversation. And so that's a really good thing. I think with any kind of gestures and symbols, they go through a kind of life span. Uh, so you kind of start off with them being spontaneous and they're kind of highly effective because they're disruptive. And then you get this sort of mass adoption phase. And that's where the change can really occur, where everyone feels engaged around it. They feel that this particular symbol, for whatever reason, symbolises the change that they want to see. And then at some point, that becomes performative. And uh, actually what you start doing is policing non-compliance. And you forget why it is your mate, what that symbol stands for. Uh, and that's the sort of decay phase. And then eventually it just becomes wallpaper. So that people go... Actually, I've forgotten what that's about. Now, now I think part of the challenge for things like for, for also Kick It Out is we've just had the Kick It Out t-shirt and the Kick It Out slogan for 27 years. And actually, I think, you know, a lot of the feedback we get from players is that it's kind of wallpaper. We've st- stopped understanding what it is what it is you stand for and what it is you're trying to do. And that's part of the reason why some of the campaigns that we're going to be launching soon are, are different. And they, they, you know, they're kicking out branded campaigns. But it, I, I want us to be more action oriented. And that's but part of the reason why symbols and gestures decay is if you don't have a really clear idea of what it is you want. Mm. So and I think what Simon was also saying with something like Black Lives Matter is, it, it, you know, it's beauty, actually, in a way is also its challenge. The beauty is that it's uh, a slogan we can all get behind because, of course, that matters. And, of course, we understand why it's being raised in this particular context because historically black lives haven't mattered as much. And that's the point it's making. And so it is sim- symbolic of that that fight for greater uh, uh, racial justice. But what, do, what it actually means, what does that turn into in terms of a demand for action? And that's where... Because it's so big, you know, all political parties are coalitions, and this is bigger than a political party. This is a global movement. So you've got this coalition of lots and lots of different people that will have different interests. No one person speaks for BLM. Mm. So no one one person can translate that into this is what it means, this is what we want in football. And so in a a way, I'm really happy that BLM exists because it raises the consciousness of the issue. And I'm trying to translate that into what this means in terms of action is we need to do these things. What it means in English football is we need to do these things. So we need to focus on the doing. So when I was having that a dialogue actually with Simon Jordan last week, I was saying, well, you know, Les Ferdinand's right. We need to focus on the action. In that respect, right. whether you think the message of BLM is still effective or is decaying, actually that, that, that's irrelevant. We're, if we're arguing about gestures and symbols, we're arguing about the wrong things. The objective here is not to own the symbols and gestures. The objective is to make change. So what are we doing to make change? And what are those actions? And I think that's where I want us to focus our time, which is why we're spending time on setting those long-term targets, trying to create the transparency that will help us to deliver those targets. 
And actually, from a tackling discrimination perspective, really the big challenge at the moment is how you manage online hate. And so I've been talking to the government about how we have new regulations and I'm pushing for the online harms bill, how we manage enforcement and actually understanding the mechanics of how these things are enforced, encouraging the social media companies to take things down, encouraging football to take responsibility for its players and to encourage clubs to take responsibility for their players by monitoring the activity on social media and to hold social media's feet to the fire. Those are the things, those are doing things and action things. If we're focused on the symbols and who owns the symbols and which symbols got the most traction, we're talking about the wrong stuff. That's what Maya Angelou talked about, distraction techniques. There's a distraction techniques to stop us talking about the things we really should be talking about. Do you feel any kind of pressure at the moment with, given the fact that BLM, taking the knee, etc. That's all in a public consciousness right now that you need to roll things out quicker while the momentum is still there. So the best piece of advice I got when I took this job is um, you would have done a good job if in there are more people saying well done in 10 years time than in one year's time. Right. There, you know, I, I, I don't. If I want to drive change and you want to drive cultural change, it doesn't happen in one year. And it doesn't happen in one month. We need to take advantage of the moment and take advantage of the movement to enable us to create change. Because what you have now is a momentum and a willingness from the authorities and a willingness from clubs to change. So I see that as that's the moment we have to seize on. But that doesn't mean that everything we do, we have to constantly chatter about it in the media. You know, we actually, sometimes we need to do things, get it right, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, of course, there's always a degree of public pressure because people want you to just, people want to sound right, don't they? And they, they all, actually, the reality is what they want is a really simple answer to a complex problem. But I'm sorry, there are no magic ones. These are complex problems. And a slogan is not an answer. It doesn't matter whether whether the slogan is kick it out, no room for racism or any other slogan. That is not the answer. That is part of the answer because what it says is these are our values. This is our mission statement. It doesn't tell people what to do. It doesn't ask them to do anything. So what I want to focus on is how we distribute this to activity that everybody can do because that's how we're going to solve it. It's not going to be someone at the centre coming up with a fantastic answer. It's actually the whole of the industry has to be involved in it. Players, fans, participants, everyone has to be engaged. Has the Black Lives Matter, the Take the Knee, etc., has, has any of that, I was about to say, not so much come as a surprise to you, that's probably the wrong phrase, but has that changed any of either your thinking or the direction of the strategies at all? Yeah, it's probably accelerated a whole bunch of it because we... we have got a, a more willing audience and a more receptive audience. So, like I wrote that that manifesto in the in the Times a few weeks ago, uh, in light of in light of Black Lives Matter, and I think that's because there was that represented an opportunity that there was a willingness to change because there was a sense of, sense of you know not just in football actually across industries. You know, one of one of my mentors is a chair of a FTSE 100, and he was talking about. The, the the atmosphere in business and 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 the top companies and, and businesses being in a state of either anger confusion or both um uh, in how to respond and i think that presented an opportunity to 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 create change and and so that that was really what i sensed and then 
focusing on these are the behaviours that we need to do, these are the things that we need to do in order to drive that change. And was your manifesto published before or after the Tory MPs, some of them refused to take the unconscious bias training? Uh, before, before, yeah. I, had only, I didn't actually say much about unconscious bias training except for very, 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 very specifically about academies and uh, scouts around Asian players because I'm convinced that's part of the problem. You know, I think unconscious bias training, unconscious bias training, it's, it's one of those things that only works if it fits in an ecosystem of a bunch of other activities that are also designed to remove bias and create a more equal or a, a, a more equal opportunities uh, uh, organisation. Uh, you know, if you try, if you if you're just doing the uh, if you're just doing the unconscious bias training on its own once, you'll you'll just cause some behaviour change for about four weeks, and then everything will revert back to normal. You've got to do all the other things that go with it. But it was before. It was before the Tories did that. (laughs) Okay. I was actually going to ask um, Sanjay about his time at Ernest Young and how kind of the diversity and equality strategies that they apply uh, apply at a big four firm could be transferred potentially into sport. I think that'd be quite interesting to hear about or what his thoughts are on that. Yeah, and that's a lot of what the base of the manifesto was, because when, when I joined EY, I was the 11th non-white partner out of about 500. By the time I left, it was 10% of the partners with a target of 20%. Um, and that was part of a strategy. And actually, part of that was that was a game of two halves as well, because for the first half of it, first five or six years, we probably tried to drive change by say, arguing that it was for social justice and it was the right thing to do and didn't really make any change and then we we more built the business case of this is the reason why we want to do this and it was it's good for the business to get more profit more revenue more creative more innovative will be more successful with the clients looking at the research from you know mckinsey and the others and choosing to believe that and making that leap of faith and that's what what drove the change um and but then we also put all the other infrastructure around that that requires you know cascading of targets and comply or explain if you don't hit the targets if you're in a different operating unit uh and celebrating your your role models differential investment in your talent also training your current leaders because you don't get the benefits of a diverse team unless it's led inclusively so you've got to change your current leaders thinking about your models of leadership all of those things, they're all, they're all, you know, I've adapted them, but they're all in there. They're all in the kinds of things that I've talked about as a manifesto for football and the kinds of things that we can do. They're all initiatives that we can do. You know, the the the, the BAME coaching initiative, the, the Premier League and the EFL launched with the PFA recently. That's just one of those differential investments in talent that I was talking about. It's one of those talent programmes Um so, and, and actually the setting of the targets that we're doing now with the code, uh, that's again, it's just, it's, it's, it's part of the measure, but then creating the reporting and the transparency and the comply or explain ongoing is how you'll drive the change. So, and it's not just in consulting where there's been changes in other industries as well. And I think football hasn't always been great at learning from other industries. You know, football isn't those other industries, so we have to adapt it to, to the very specific circumstances of football. But I think there is learning from those uh, from, from other industries. Okay, fantastic. Going back to Asians in football for a second, let's say 
you had a magic wand of sorts and you could you could create one, two, possibly three initiatives that you think would solve the problem, what do you think those would be? I, I think the first one would, would, would be that a, 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 an ecosystem of unconscious bias training at that academy and scout level because it feels to me that's a crucial area where players just don't come through the system because there's an assumption about the the, the people involved and that that and that those are based on stereotypes uh, and we've discussed some of them already you know your parents will want you to do this or you're or you're not going to be physically big enough and, and all that all that kind of stuff to me that feels like the 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 biggest and most important one because part of the challenge of all these things you always get the pushback that you know we're we're in theory we're a meritocracy i think it then comes down to also making you know encouraging clubs to 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 look in the places you know because often agents don't play for safety reasons won't always play in the same leagues as they're as the scouts are going to so you've got to encourage them to go out to different areas. And we don't just see that in football, do we? We see that in cricket as well, because bizarrely, there's a mass underrepresentation in cricket, uh, you know, given the, the love of the Indian subcontinent for, for cricket. There's, there's no excuse for that, because there certainly isn't that physical excuse, because India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka are so incredible, incredibly successful at cricket. So they haven't got that excuse to hide behind um so going out into those communities in the same way that cricket's not doing it football's not doing it you need to go out into the areas where you're going to you're going to spot that you're going to spot that talent i think that's two i think i might need a bit more time to think of a third one i don't have i don't have a third one. <laughs> i i mean the, 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 the one thing i would say is it's gonna come the whatever those third initiatives and the other initiatives are they have to be focused on the clubs, right? Because too often, and one of the things that irritates me is when when there's a problem of lack of representation, the lazy reflex is actually to blame the minority and say, oh, well, you need to reach out more, you need to do this more, you need to do that more. And then one person who's made it through says, yeah, well, I did this, uh, so you can do it too. You know, that's the reality. That That's not the reality. <laughs> the reality is those opportunities are are clearly just not, not there or not as evenly distributed. So I think the onus is on the clubs to be doing more, to ask the questions why they haven't got them, to explain them. I suppose the, the, the last bit might be a transparency reporting piece. Tell me. If every club had to report the ethnic makeup of their players all the way down through the the academy, that would be the thing I would like to see because I'm very focused on data. That's one of the other uh, areas that I'm really interested in in, in for our organisation is for us to be an engine for transparency and transparency is based on understanding the, the data, what's really happening, not guesses, not anecdotes, not hunches. What does the data say? So actually clubs committing to share the data about the ethnicity of their players so we can start tracking that and start seeing if there are Asian kids in the academy, when do they drop off? And then we can start examining why are they dropping off? If we've got them at 11 and 12, but we haven't got them at 17, why is that? I think it's a bit of a chicken and the egg, really, when you come, when you talk about the first thing about the ecosystem, the unconscious bias training, if 
if they don't have that, they're not, the kids aren't going to get into a position where you can start counting the numbers in any well, meaningful way. Well, you can count the numbers. You can count the numbers anyway because you, you've got that data. You can count the numbers. You can collect that data about the ethnicity of the members of the academy. And if that number is zero and that's reported, you know, then you suddenly might be getting the people interested in this as a topic. So actually, in some ways, the data bit <laughs> is is the most important bit because uh, at the moment we're having the dialogue based on anecdote. We're not having the dialogue based on data. Okay. So who, either who or how should that be tackled? I don't, I, look, I appreciate I'm putting you on the spot here, so don't expect a, a detailed answer or... Well, I think the club should be reporting that. You know, we, like I say, I think we, you know, I, I think they should be reporting. If, we, if we're setting targets for senior leadership and coaching, we're only going to know that we're hitting those targets if people report and they report the makeup and they report how that's changing over time. And someone needs to independently validate that. And I think that should be an organisation like ours that collects that data and says, this is the state of English football. These are the percentages. This is what this is where the the fall offs are. But you know, ultimately, if we want to tackle the absence of Asian players, we're going to have to do it with the numbers and proving that there's a statistical anomaly. Okay, Kevin, any questions from you before I wrap up with Sanjay? No, I think I think we've covered a lot there, and there's a lot of great stuff that we now know that people listening probably wouldn't have known until this podcast. So I think it's been really insightful, and I uh, I really do thank you for your time, Sanjay. It's been really great. No worries. Okay, Sanjay. So, a couple of final questions from me. Um, what in in terms of generally moving away from Asians in football and just talking specifically, I guess, about your your role as chair of Kick It Out? What would you What would you like your legacy to be? Realistically, we've we've done the blue sky thinking a little bit with with the Asians in football. When you finally leave and move on to an, another chapter in your career, how would you like to be remembered? People think of Kick It Out as being the organisation that creates solutions rather than just talking about problems. Fantastic. Okay, excellent. Sanjay, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you.